You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. On what path can Raz al Ghul offer? The path of a man who shares his hatred of evil and wishes to serve true justice. The path of the League of Shadows. <laughs> the vigilantes. No, no, no. The vigilante is just a man lost in the scramble for his own gratification. He can be destroyed or locked up. But if you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. Which is? Legend, Mr. Wayne. Tomorrow you will be released. If you are bored of brawling with petty thieves and want to achieve something, there is a rare blue flower that grows on the eastern slopes. Pick one of these flowers. If you can carry it to the top of the mountain, you may find what you were looking for in the first place. And what was I looking for? Only you can know that. Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club, Trek FM's dedicated general geek show. I just I love being here in the 602 Club. It's fantastic. I've got some amazing gentlemen with me tonight. I mean, just stupendous. I mean, the kind of gentleman I wish I was, but I'm not. So I just have them on the show so that I can sit back and let them go. One of these amazing gentlemen is Batman fanatic extraordinaire Tristan Riddell. It's not what I say, but what I do that defines me. Wow, we've already started with Wait, the, you uh, said it was Tristan, Dr- Ruff- Tristan Riddell, I- not, not Christian Bale. <laughs> no, I, I, well, it's, they're so close. I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody being closer to Christian Bale than Tristan Riddell. But if there was somebody that might be closer, it's John Mills. I mean, really, I, I'd say I'm closer to Jim Gordon. I just can't do the voice. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I'm sort of the upstanding sort of like the 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 rock on which the Batman church is built. Mm. I turn on the signal. I remind people that he's there, that he's out there. It's a watching over. It's us. a good role. Yeah. That's right. That's an underrated role. Gordon is an he underrated is. role. Oh, completely agree. Uh, well, and so so glad that uh, we are going to be able to talk all about all of these characters as we dive into the Nolan verse of Batman Begins kicking it off. And uh, before we do that, of course, just remember We are so excited to be here on Trek FM, and of course, Trek FM can be found everywhere. You can find us on iTunes at itunes.com slash trekfm, and you can also find us on Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We've got our website, trek.fm. While you're there, uh, if you're looking at one of our show pages, hit discussion on the menu bar. That brings you to our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook, the Babel Conference uh, we'll let you write in if you ask to be let in. Of course, you can also just find it on Facebook. Uh, just type Babel into the search field there. And, of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. So all over the place. And then, of course, you can find the shows everywhere. iTunes, where we're a feature provider. And you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, podcasts, everywhere. So we're all over the place. And 
while you're there in iTunes, uh, hit us up with a star rating review because that really helps us out. So now, guys, uh, I'm really excited to be here tonight and, and mainly because you know, I think for me, th these three films were transformative as they were for a lot of people when it came to superhero films in the first place. But I wanted to go back to the beginning and the fact that we were going to begin again. Now, because Batman's a character that we've seen a lot on screen. Of course, he was in the famous 60s series where uh, we got introduced to pow and kapow and bang. And I mean... As many color graphics as possible that could get uh, thrown up on screen. Uh, you know, we get Keaton in, in 89 and 92. Uh, we've got Kilmer in 95, Clooney in 97. And then there's a lull. And we hear rumblings that Batman is going to be brought back to screen. So I wanted to ask you, where do you guys start? with Batman, what, and, and and maybe what was your favorite Batman up until this point? And were you actually even excited that there was going to be another Batman iteration? I was cautiously optimistic. Um, I, I bore the scars of seeing Batman and Robin in the movie theater, and uh, I, I mean, it was dead and buried. You know, I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I, that, that was a fun ride while it lasted. Um and then just when news came up about, you know, oh, Batman Begins and, you know, Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale. I mean, I didn't actually know Christian Bale's body of work terribly well. I was like, OK, well, I, like he's, you know, all right. That's a respected actor, I guess. And uh, the, the, the one that caught my eye, actually, was that it was going to have uh, Gary Oldman in it because Oldman had gone through his troubles in Hollywood uh, after the whole conflagration over on uh, the Hannibal set. And I I figured, I was like, oh, well, you know, Oldman's a good get because, you know, his career was kind of flagging. So, you know, that's, you know, good pull, guys. But, yeah, I, I mean, I was cautiously optimistic, but I, I, you know, I was so nostalgically in love with the original Batman that I was like, well, you know, the best it's going to get is it'll be fun. Yeah, with me, I was... Um... My my favorite was uh, Keaton's Batman in '89. I uh, I absolutely loved that movie as a kid, and I uh, still love it today. It's one of my favorites, and uh, I hated Batman Returns, but then I loved Batman Forever as a kid, and then I I hated Batman and Robin. So it was it was I kept going up and down for me, and I was like, well, I guess we're due for a win with the next one. But I was um when I heard that they were making a new Batman and that they were going to start with the origins, I, I was excited. And then when I saw the first trailer, I remember uh, it was the first trailer that I could download on QuickTime on the, on the internet. Uh, I think actually, no Nemesis might've been the first trailer I ever downloaded, which came first Nemesis or Batman begins. Uh, I don't remember. You're asking oh me gosh. a question about Nemesis and I've tried so hard to forget <laughs> that film. I, I can't recall. I'm pretty sure Nemesis came first. I'm pretty sure Nemesis was first. Okay, Nemesis came out in 2002. Okay, so Nemesis came out in yeah. 2002, and this one came out in... Wow, so I was way off. But this is... Um, I remember... Samsonite. Oh, <laughs> way off. So Batman Begins, I, I tried to download the trailer, and I remember it was taking forever to download the trailer and at, at that time because I wanted to watch it in HD. And I remember that opening shot of uh, Bruce Wayne out in the, uh, out in the Himalayas <laughs> or like in Tibet like walking and uh, like seeing him in his rags. And I was like, 
oh, this is going to be different. This is going to be cool. Like it, just seeing some of that first footage, you could just tell it was way different from any other Burton or Schumacher film that came before it. You know what? What's funny is I, you know, sorry to jump back in, but just uh, when you're talking about the trailer, the 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 thing that stuck with me about the trailer that always gave me a chuckle and still gives me a chuckle when I watch the movie was the guy screaming, "Where are you here?" And I was like, that that was that was a fun moment in the trailer. Sorry, you just you just. You brought that memory up to the surface. Oh, these were some great trailers, yeah. Well, that's still a great, great bit in the movie. I love that when he's here. Uh, that yeah. is fantastic. And, of course, he's like, who are you? I'm Batman. <laughs> he gets his the, the obligatory I'm Batman line. It's yeah. just it's uh-huh. awesome. So, yeah. you know, uh, what's funny for me, you know, I, I grew up and I'd seen some of the 60s Batman because it would be on TV, you know, and you'd, you'd go by it and you'd watch a little bit of it as a kid. And so, and then, of course, you know, Keaton, uh, I... You know the first Batman movie is fine for me. I don't love it. I still don't love it, but it's 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 good. It's decent. Uh, I don't like uh, like Utrus, and I don't like Returns. Uh, I think it was just it's dark and and weird, and and it, it's like too much. It's like Icky. they poured on too much. Tim Burton sauce was way too much on that burger, uh, except yeah. for Michelle Pfeiffer, and then you know that's that's a, a whole different story. Uh, like you. Also, really enjoyed Batman Forever as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, it was there was something about I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was fun. I they had you two uh, singing a song in it, which was fantastic <laughs> for me as a kid as well. And I, I still love that song. And that movie it, it captured, I think the like the fun of the '60s series, but being a little tiny bit more serious. And Val Kilmer wasn't bad as Batman. And then of course Clooney just destroyed everything. And it's not really just his fault. I mean, the whole movie is disaster. Yeah, it's just an utter, yeah. <laughs> unmitigated disaster of a film. I mean, it's so bad, it's bad. It's not even so bad, it's good. It's just bad. Uh, I've I've come across it on TV a few times, and I like watch a few seconds, and then I immediately want to hurl my beer back up. So I, I just stop watching. Um, but by the time we got to to 2005, you know, and with Nolan. I'd seen Memento by him, and so my thought was, oh, wow, this... I automatically knew this was going to be, like, really different, and that was exciting to me. And, you know, Batman's not my favorite character, but he's my second favorite superhero, so I was very excited to see the fact that maybe we'd go in a different direction, and then, of course, the trailers started coming out, and... This just looked like everything I ever wanted in a superhero movie. I just didn't know it at this point. And, I mean, yeah, legitimately, this is everything I never knew I always wanted. I I couldn't wait to get there. And so I wanted to talk with you guys a little bit about this idea of the Nolan influence. Because I think that this... Is a huge thing starting with Batman Begins and obviously running all the way through this series. And it will carry on well beyond this. Uh, I, I think no one has forever changed the landscape of superhero films, but it starts here. And watching the extras again, I was struck by how he says something that we hear a lot these days, but it was kind of revolutionary at the time. He said, 
I wanted to do a superhero movie that felt like it took place in the real world with just a slight heightened reality. And I just what again, just a revolutionary idea at the time. Well, I mean, Burton's Batman was supposed to be an exercise in in bringing him to a more realistic. I mean, you know, Anton First's production design very much roots him in sort of this uh, pseudo New York. Um, pre Giuliani, you know, that exists. Yeah, yes, definitely yeah, pre Giuliani. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, they'll get they'll get back there. Everything returns to normal. So I look forward to Times Square. Anyway, um, and Batman moved away. I think I think that you're right, Matt, to call out that with Batman Forever and for, with Batman and Robin, that Schumacher was very much rooted in pulling it very hard back toward the 1960s aesthetic, the 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 day glow colors, and you know the, just the popping. This is strictly for kids. This is not, you know, he wasn't trying to make something that was uh, anything besides a nostalgia trip for himself, which was he understood superheroes to be what Batman was in the 1960s. He didn't get serious with it the way that we did. Um, so I, I definitely think that that was, you know, the way to go. I think what, what makes Nolan's approach unique is that he created the world instead of like Burton was limited even by the fact that he very obviously said, okay, this is Batman and this is fantastic. And we're going to put the trappings of the real world around it. Whereas no one's approach was to build a real world and then say, what do I have to tweak to make this character able to exist within our world? And that, you know, and that's sort of the thing that I think that he brought to it was he, his approach was different where he wasn't approaching it from putting the trappings of reality on Batman. He was approaching from the the perspective of putting the trappings of Batman on reality. I think what happened was when, like for me, when this came out, like it was so, this is when I truly found out who Nolan was and what he could do. I mean, like I, I saw all his films beforehand, but I didn't really connect them with the director. But then after Batman Begins, that's when I really started to connect it to Nolan. And then it was solidified by Dark Knight. And but with this one, and I I will say this to whomever asks me and I, I say it to the world. I say it on my my other podcast all the time is that before Dark Knight came out, this was the best superhero film ever made. Like I in in my opinion, I love this more than any other superhero film that I'd ever seen. I, lo- I loved it more than 89. I loved it more than Returns Forever. Uh, I loved it more than Superman in the 70s. I loved it more than any other superhero film. And then I did not think it could get any better. And then The Dark Knight came out and my face melted off. And this is all because of that world building that you you talked about, John, is that he built the world around it. He built a world that was that we bought into. Like you, like any director can create a world that is fantastic or, or even amazing or sometimes unbelievable. But you, you grab the premise with this one. He was able to convince us that this could be a real place, even though people are flying around with capes. I mean, just think about it because, like, we saw several after this movie came out. We saw several articles where it says, "What would it cost to be Batman?" No one ever really asked that question before. And the reason why we're asking that question is because it's conceivable to be Batman now. 
I think that's one of the things that I really liked about the way that Nolan took everything. And that the idea was, what if Batman is real? Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's kind of the base question. What if Batman's real? What if he really exists in our world? And like you said, John, so what do we have to do to make that possible? Like, what are the the technologies that we can talk about in here that would make this seem plausible, you know? And and so that's one of the things I love is how throughout the film, you know, he's going to Lucius Fox and they are showing him technologies. And, and I didn't even realize this, but that, that cloth, that memory cloth is actually something that the Defense Department's actually been working on, you know? All of his equipment was based off of real military equipment. It's insane. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think. And I think that's something that makes it so special because... And that's one of the, you know, it makes sense to me that Nolan loves Batman, like that that's his superhero character, because Batman really isn't that far from reality. You know, there are some fantastical elements of Batman, but that's not something that he, Nolan, ever puts into his universe. And so everything, again, it's it's very grounded. But there's something about that that I find really interesting because... As much as Chris Nolan loves Batman, Chris Nolan is not a Batman fanboy in the sense that he doesn't know the comics the way the writer he pursued did. And as much as I think Nolan is a hero here, and and unfortunately, for some reason, fans have, have really gotten on David Goyer recently, but the guy comes in, and I think he he's the one who talks to Nolan for an hour on the phone and Nolan calls him back a few days later and is like, you have to do this because it's his story, his ideas, pulling all of these things like from, you know, the, the long Halloween to year one to um, the man who falls, all of these different comic elements and he's putting them all together into one cohesive Batman origin story. That's not... Nolan, that's Goyer. So I think it's really those two working together that create this aesthetic that becomes the Nolan universe. And and that's, I think, a really important and, and I think key point here. Well, I, I definitely wouldn't shortchange Goyer, uh, you know, in, in terms of this collaboration. But I think that, that you hit on it, that Goyer, um, you know... Th- I don't mean this to be in any way reductive or dismissive or anything like that, but certain people bring out your A game, mm-hmm. and I definitely think that you're right to call out that their collaboration is what worked. Nolan brought Goyer's A game out, um, and I, I because I think the the thing that you can't ignore is that Goyer has had even before Batman Begins sort of a hit and miss history with things depending on the production and the director and stuff like that. I think that Nolan is able, like any great director would be able to, to recognize what truly worked in the material that was being brought and then shape it in such a way. So I, I definitely think that Goyer is a a piece of this collaboration that should be acknowledged. Um, but I, I, just, I, I would put a lot of emphasis on the fact that Nolan is the type of filmmaker who has... Uh, such a command of his craft that he knows how to take, you know, like, the, you know, if you look at Goyer's, you know, writing as like clay, 
or or stone or whatever, however you want to do the sculpting metaphor. Nolan is the one that knows what pieces to knock away to turn it into a beautiful, you know, uh, you know, uh, David or Venus or something like that. So you're saying he's the Michelangelo? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And David is a a nice piece of granite. Yeah, uh, he's the quarry worker. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Who found the right piece of granite oh, okay. that the sculptor would be able to work. I'm with. sorry, I'm yeah, just trying to follow you on it. this on this metaphor. Valley. Yeah, I he, can't follow myself to be honest with you. He's so, going out no, there and fair. he's the one that's that's finding out of all the granite the one piece that's kind of like they're going to be perfect piece for the sculptor to work on. So it's like exactly. sifting through all of those comic book stories to find out the best ones to put on. Yeah, I get it. It makes sense. Well, since um, we're uh, since we're talking about the Nolan influence, I, I would like to like, and we're all fans of what I'm about to mention is uh, like, yeah, we've seen the Nolan influence in superhero films, not just uh, like his, but, you know, superhero films that are coming out and that have come out. Uh, but one big influence that Batman Begins had and Nolan specifically is Casino Royale. It's the entire reason why we got a reboot mm-hmm. of James Bond is because they saw what Nolan did for Batman they made him gritty, darker, and realistic, and they're like, holy crap, we can totally do that to Bond right now. And then thus, Daniel Craig's Bond was born. That's amazing. And they, and they pulled it off. Uh, they, they did, and the, the beautiful part of that loop is that uh, Nolan himself is a, is a Bond fan. He's actually cited, uh, unfortunately, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, hey, which is a beautifully shot. It's a beautifully shot movie. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kicking it around. It's a beautifully shot movie with a terrible bond, but the, but he is a, you know, that movie and you can actually see definitely influences on Nolan that, that bond had. And even to go back to uh, Matt, your, your point about, you know, the technology that they were working on. I mean, Lucius Fox basically becomes Q in this movie. Oh yeah. You know, that's so true. And, and that, so I, I definitely think that, that it's a two way street there. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one of the things that I really want to stress here. I get so tired of people talking about how dark and gritty the Batman films are by Nolan. It's not dark and gritty, people. It's just serious. We're finally just taking a superhero seriously. And that doesn't mean it's dark and gritty. It just makes it a serious take. And I think there's a big difference because one of the things that's very interesting about the Nolan films, they're not really funny. You don't find yourself laughing out loud. Mm. You might chuckle uh, every once in a while, but I don't laugh out loud watching these films. But that doesn't hurt my enjoyment of the film because I'm enjoying the serious take on the characters and the way in which the world is presented, the way in which the characters present. And I, to me, I find that fascinating and I enjoy watching a film of this caliber partly because of the way in which... Nolan treats the subject matter as if it is something that deserves your attention and is not just something that is supposed to entertain you for a couple of hours. Nolan doesn't do that because we'll talk a little bit later on. He also want to challenge you with some ideas and use superheroes to maybe say something to us about our world. So I, I think to me, this is really the first superhero film that tries to do that, that tries to have something to say through the hero about our world and make it seem like it's more important than just some, you know, Saturday afternoon entertainment that you'll walk in and walk out. It's like in one ear and out the other. That's that's not what we're trying to do here. We're actually trying to craft uh, 
something special. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying there, and I I, I do agree with you. I I would say that Batman Begins, I, you know, and this is the Mike Schindler uh, asserting itself in me. But I would love to do a double feature because Nolan has also acknowledged another influence, which is Donner's Superman. I would love to do a double feature with that Superman and Batman Begins because there are parallels in these stories. There are definitely call-outs that Nolan has embedded in it. It's very obvious the influence that 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 story had on him uh, in terms of how he was going to approach a superhero. I also I, I also understand what you're saying about the there are no guffaws in the movie, mm-hmm. specifically speaking about Batman Begins, but there are parts where I do laugh because I, I do think that there are funny moments in it. I think that Nolan's strength with the seriousness is that he knows when to break it with humor. Mm-hmm. Like he he picks the humor at the right moments and it a lot of it has to do with the way that the characters right. deliver things. He's driving a black Tank. <laughs> yes, right. And I think that's the thing that is very different uh, in, from, say, this and maybe a Marvel movie where it is just kind of a quip every five seconds. This is not that. The humor is driven by the situation, not the situation by the humor. Uh, the, the humor here is not tried. It, you're not trying to force it or anything like that. In, in Nolan's universe, humor just kind of comes out of a situation. And I think, you know, he said, you know, speaking to his ideas about Superman, uh, he felt that many previous films uh, in the superhero genre were, you know, exercises in style over the drama. And he didn't want to do that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, even Donner Superman has some of that. But for him... The big thing from Donner Superman that he took was the idea that he wanted an epic cast that immediately brought weight to the film. You know, the same way that you see Marlon Brando's name on the marquee and you immediately feel some gravitas in that role. And you're like, oh, Marlon Brando and Superman. Well, this is more important than just, you know, popcorn entertainment. Uh. <laughs> yes, Krypton. <laughs> I caught, I heard that, Tristan. Well done. <laughs> I I love it. Like when I, when I when I was looking up David S. Goyer, I started looking. I was like, I was like, oh, what you know? What did he do? What is he doing now? And then I saw that he's going to be writing for the TV series of Krypton. And I'm like, oh man, how awesome would it be if everybody pronounced it Krypton, like? <laughs> I would be in heaven. That would be I would absolutely, absolutely be in heaven. Even though you were born as one of them, you're not one of them. Uh, no, I, you know, uh, I, okay, see, I could go down a whole rabbit hole there about how, why don't planets that we visit ever have dialects the way that our planet does. But sorry, never mind, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so talking about that influence, I think it's a perfect time to kind of jump in to the cast that they bring in for Batman Begins, and I think it's perfect time to talk about Batman himself and making Christian Bale uh, this iconic character because, honestly, for me, Christian Bale isn't somebody that I really knew except maybe from Newsies, you know? Uh, and so uh, the fact that you hand him the reins, you know, the, the cow to be 
Batman. Uh, it was a, you know, I think it was, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I, I'm a little bit torn. Uh, yeah, I was this. I was the same way. I didn't really know him that well. I mean, I I knew him as a as a child actor from Empire of the Sun, and also from Newsies. And so I knew him as the and like Newsies was big in my house growing up. So I knew him as the guy who would sing Santa Fe, and so it was it was it, it was kind of a blank slate because I never really knew him as an adult. Like I never really saw any of his movies as adult Christian Bale. So when he was coming as Batman, I, I was excited because I didn't really know that much about him. It was kind of like how I felt with Henry Cavill being Superman, where I really only knew him as a child actor from The Count of Monte Cristo, but that was enough for me to go, yeah, yeah, no, I can totally see it. See, for me, Christian Bale was Patrick Bateman, oh, and yeah. I think that was possibly the only thing that I had seen that he had done up to that point. So it was sort of along the lines of American Psycho is going to be yeah, okay. Well, let's, you know, let's give it a shot. Yeah, people often um, say that his Patrick Bateman is basically Bruce Wayne, which I don't quite agree with, but no, no, I'm not. I don't agree with that at all. Um, but, uh, you know, I knew his name was supposed to be one that I respected, but I just wasn't familiar with his work, you know, a whole lot. Yeah, I guess uh, for me, really, it was Newsies that I knew from, you know. So uh, a dancing, singing child is is not somebody I'm I'm super familiar with as we dive into him being Batman. But I think one of the things that I, I really like about Christian Bale in this film is the seriousness with which he takes the role. You know, he I feel like he makes you believe that he is this character because there's no goofing around. There's never a point where anybody, especially him, is winking at the camera at all. Yeah. Like, all of this is for real, you know? Like, this is Batman for real. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of that does have to do with um, the very first thing that they do to sell you on the intensity of Bruce Wayne is that fight in the Chinese prison. And yeah. I think that that's the moment where Christian Bale sells himself to the audience uh, you know, when the guy says, you in hell, little man, and I am the devil. You're not the devil. You're practice. Like, that was the moment at which I was like, okay, I can plug into this. I can, I can work with when this. When they're pulling him off, too, and he's like, yeah. what? I don't need protection. Not <laughs> yeah. protection for you, for them. <laughs> right, exactly. I, okay, so since, since we're talking about Christian Bale, we need to talk about his voice. Now, a lot of people... Why? <laughs> A lot. Okay, um, many people credit Kevin Conroy as kind of developing that split personality. That's like a one voice for Bruce Wayne, one voice for Batman. Even though, like Keaton did it a little bit. Kind, it was just kind of Keaton would just kind of whispered, and uh, when he was Batman, and I don't think uh, I don't think Kilmer did anything, and oh, good lord, Clooney didn't do anything with his voice. And it's like, hey, Freeze. Hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. Batman. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so with Bale, you know, you had that, you had that, that gritty, swear to me. You know, like, do I look like a cop? You know, you like, you had those, that voice change and it, it, it brought on a lot of criticism. I immediately fell in love with it. What did you guys think? I enjoyed it. I didn't see that. I guess we maybe ran in different circles or something because nobody that I knew at the time who saw the movie complained about the voice. The complaints about the voice that I heard started with The Dark Knight because yeah. they definitely amped up the voice for that Yeah, one. you're right. And with this one, 
I, like Batman Begins, there wasn't a lot of complaint about it. And I I did enjoy, you know, because we, we referenced the uh, the behind the scenes stuff. I did enjoy seeing his screen test. Yes. Um, at one point where he talked about like the only the only cowl that they had was Kilmer's. And they were like, you got to put this on and do it. And he's like, the voice just came out at that moment because he was like, this is I couldn't do just my voice. He's like, I had to do something different wearing this ridiculous thing on my head. And how cool is it? That he screen tested with Amy Adams playing playing the part of Rachel. And then you also find right. out that Henry oh, Cavill... Oh, God, she would have been so much better. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Son of a gun! But the thing is, mm, yeah. then you find out that Henry Cavill screen tested as Batman with Amy Adams. So at least they knew they had chemistry. How cool is that, that Henry Cavill, yeah. who's going to play Superman, once screen tested for Batman, and Amy Adams, who played Lois Lane, once tested for... Not tested, but like helped play uh rachel uh rachel dawes i th- that's just i love that in universe crap yeah no it's fun i honestly never had a problem with the voice um now i i feel like it is a little bit strange that they wouldn't just think of the idea which they put into batman v superman of him having the voice modulator which i think makes complete sense uh in the bat mm. costume mm. Oh, yeah. oh, shut up both of you <laughs> I just, I don't have time for your crap. Uh, no, to me, that makes so much more sense than somebody having to spend all day with golem juice so that they can talk like this all night to bad guys. Hey, Christian Bale managed to do it. Batman could manage to do it, too. Well, Batman, That's all I'm going to say. Batman's not a big talker. But I That's true. don't have a problem with it. I, I think it's, it's fine. And I think Christian Bale does a great job. And it makes sense. Again, uh, you know... Even though you're in this costume, your voice can't come out sounding like you do in everyday life. You know, you've got Bruce Wayne, a guy who hangs out uh, with all these rich people. He's going to be seen on TV. His voice is going to be heard on TV. Batman can't sound like the guy who also walks out of the really expensive nightclub with two ladies on his arm. You know, it just it can't be the same. So I I never had a problem with it at all. Uh, And I think... It adds a feralness to his Batman. You know, it adds this like beast caged up inside that gets let out when he puts on the suit, which Batman kind of is. Uh, you know, he it's his place to let out that rage that he's kind of working out after what happened to his parents. And so to me, it all just makes sense. So, um, but no, I, I do like the voice modulator better, and you are both wrong. But let's talk about Michael Caine as Alfred yes. Pennyworth. The Wayne which, family. Yes, uh, never. It just fantastic, I think, casting. like Perfect I, you casting. Know, yeah, it, yeah. D- hands down. That's just what it is. It's perfect casting. I found out that they first offered the role to Anthony Hopkins, and I love Anthony Hopkins, but I do uh, not think he would have made call. a good Alfred and the least... And when you when you see when you hear of even not even not even when you see Michael Caine as Alfred, when you just hear about the idea of Michael Caine as Alfred, everybody else is just playing for second. Agree. Well, and and what I like about the casting is I think they picked the perfect role for the person that really is going to be the the father figure, the main father figure for this young boy and this man. And what I also like about Michael Caine is that he's not a puny, scrawny guy. Like, Michael Caine's pretty tall. 
he he's he's uh he's he's a bigger guy. He's he's not large as in, you know, overweight or something. He's just a bigger guy. So he has a physicality to them. So he doesn't seem like this, you know, waif-like butler that we see in so many other interpretations. And he just seems like somebody who cares more about Bruce than anything else as much as a father would. And Michael Caine just brings that to the role, I think, perfectly. And, it, you know, especially in, in the next two films, he's, he's really going to ramp that part up. And he's always much more the father figure than he ever is the what we kind of think of as the Alfred character. Because, you know, in comic book land, in my mind... Uh, I always think of as the Alfred character is being much more involved with the Batman side and uh, honestly much more of the Jeremy Irons type of, of uh, Alfred. But this is their own making, and I really like what they do here, and they just let Michael Caine run with it. Well, this is an embrace of and a tweak of the Alfreds that we had all known before. I, I like that you call out his physicality because Alfred becomes believable as a protector and yes, as yes. a stalwart force who has you know that sort of influence on this person who's going to put on a bat costume and beat people up. Um, and I, I do agree that it pays off more in the future films, but keeping it rooted here, yeah. uh, when he later has to you know knock the guy over the head with the golf club, it's I, I know it seems like really nitpicky, but that scene, plays because somebody like Michael Caine is swinging that golf club. If they had somebody who, if Michael Goff swung that golf club, I'd be like... It would just like he's bounce gonna, off the guy's head and do nothing? Yeah, the, 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 the guy's going to get hit and he's going to turn around and he'd be like, what, what are you doing? Leave me alone. Yeah. You know, like it'd be like Mr. Burns trying to kill the guy on the school board. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, ow, quit it. Not, knock it off. Um, so yeah, no, I, I do think you're right to call out Alfred's physicality. I think that the strength, though, I with me, this this interpretation of Alfred works because I think that it, it is right to say, you know, father figure of a sort. But I see him more as like a uh, a, a cool uncle mm -hmm. sort of like and I know that that seems like a weird hair to split, but I think that it's it's important that. You know, th there's a reason why Ra's al Ghul is able to step in and inhabit that father figure for Bruce is because Alfred, whether through distance or, or what have you, Alfred doesn't have a position of power in that relationship. And I think that that's what sort of relegates him to a cool uncle who can give you advice, but you're going to take it and leave it as you need to to get through the situation. I'm going to disagree with you there because I don't think that's what happens. I think what happens is that Ra's al Ghul comes in and sees what Bruce needs in a way. Like what Bruce is going to respond to is somebody coming in to say, hey, I can help you on your goal to becoming you know, the the ultimate fighter, <laughs> basically, at this point. I can make sure that you become what you want to be. He taps into Bruce's fear. He taps into the rage. That's not what Michael Caine's Alfred is going to do at all. He's too much of the father figure that wants to try and bring uh. Bale, uh, bring Bruce Wayne back 
to to being able to move on from the past. I, Whereas I, see, I think Liam I, Neeson's Ra's al Ghul is so much more about tapping into that pain and keeping it right there at the center so that he can use him for his own means. Well, uh, I mean, of course, that's what that that's what Roz is doing. But like, I'll draw from, uh, you know, I'll get a little bit personal here. But like, my dad uh, passed away years ago, and but I have an uncle who I'm very, very close to, who you could make an argument is a father figure, but he's not a father figure. He's an uncle who I turn to for sage advice, but it's definitely not a father sort of sort of role. I mean, again, it's it's splitting hairs. I'm not saying that there's an interpretation that's more or less valid. I'm just saying that what comes across to me is that Alfred is a very stalwart um, presence in Bruce's life, but he's not he's not truly what I would call a like he's not fully a father figure. I mean, that's just that's just a a very specific thing that comes across in this performance to me. And John, I think you bring up a really good point when you when you talked about that power shift, that power dynamic. I think that's what's keeping him from being a true father figure because like if if, if father figure in the sense a vague sense of a powerful male presence in his life as a guiding force, yes. As a father substitute, no, because there is that power dynamic where Bruce is still master Bruce. Like he is the master of the house. He is the master of the family. He is a Wayne. Alfred's not a Wayne. And and so because of that, like I feel like Alfred is trying to is this entire movie is trying to convince Bruce to be a Wayne again. Is to come back to the world, be a, a member of the Wayne family, be not just a member of the Wayne family, but master of the house. That's what there's that's the reason why he's not staying in the master bedroom. You know, like that, it's all very symbolic. He's like, no, that's my father's room. I'm not going to stay in his room. And then we find out in the, uh, later on that he does start staying in the master bedroom because Alfred has convinced him to come back into the world. And so I, I don't know. I think I'm going to, uh, like, I get uh, rushing. I get what you're saying. And I th- I think if you if you broaden the term of father figure to guiding parental male presence, I know that sounds like a politician's answer, but... I, I get, uh, John. I get what you're saying, and I think I'm I'm tending to agree. No, I I like what both of you are saying, and and I think I think it's good stuff because uh, I think it it makes for a really interesting dynamic because there is this triangle that happens in the movie between those three characters, uh, and that's right as Will Smith said, in Suicide Squad triangle. Uh, so. I, yeah, I wasn't, I'm not going to curse on my own. No, we don't do that here. It's a family-friendly <laughs> show. Jeez. Uh, we don't say those kind of words here. Children, don't say those words, okay? Lem Neeson really brings, uh, and when you talk about physicality, um, Lem Neeson is a huge guy, uh, and I think he's a commanding presence pretty much whatever he does. Uh, but here, he is so perfect for Ra's al Ghul. You know, everything he does is just phenomenal in this film. And the way in which I love the way in which he is able to seduce Bruce into this. And he's almost able to get him. And I just I, I love that that power dynamic as we're talking about between 
Bruce Wayne, Alfred, and Ra's al Ghul, and who's going to win for the fight for Bruce's soul? Sure, I, I mean, but the but the thing is, um, I see. It's very interesting you say about the fight for Bruce's soul because I think that the story of Batman Begins is this. Uh, Tristan, you call out how Alfred wants him to be, you know, the the master of Wayne Manor, and so getting you know him coming back as Batman like there's a compromise there where if this is the only way I can have you back, fine. Ra's al Ghul wants him to be this one thing that serves his purposes. But then you also have Rachel played by, you know, uh, Katie, Holmes. Katie Holmes. Yes. Um, and you have you. So I think that, I think that there's a real dynamic there. I think the real triangle is between Rachel, Alfred and Roz all fighting for Bruce's different aspects. Like, I, I think it's very interesting to, the way Bruce plays off of them. And there's almost this, I, I would want to know, I want to challenge you guys because you have Katie Holmes in the mix, but then you also have, um, you also have Gordon in the mix. Mm-hmm. And so is Gordon, like Gordon, he's not a spectator in this, but how, you know, like he's this weird free radical. It's almost as if Batman is using him. Uh, to get what he wants like you know Bruce is using him yeah the way that Roz sort of uses Bruce but you have that great line where he's like now we're two <laughs> and, right. he, and he moves yeah. backwards and it's very year one I like his his relationship with Gordon is very much Batman year one in this and I really appreciate that so much like even his costume at the beginning and you know, wearing like wearing the ski mask and everything like that is—he looks just like that character yeah. from you. I mean, yeah. he looks just yes. like him. And and we all know that you know, Year One had a big focus on Gordon, way more than any other book, I think. And uh, I like the focus that Gordon got in this in this movie because you, I feel like you needed Gordon to help establish the world, and just like you needed Rachel to kind of showcase the underbelly. You show you have Gord you, like <laughs> Rachel, where Rachel explained the criminal underbelly to you. Gordon showed it to you, and I yeah. think um, and you can even jump down to Scarecrow, where he showed the participation in the underbelly. So you have Rachel who talks about the effects of the underworld. You have Gordon trying to fight the underworld, and you have uh, Scarecrow participating in the world, and then you have Lucius Fox giving the toys. To help fight everything. Now, see what what's really interesting is we're sitting here and we're 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 laying out all of these characters, right? And all and they're they're all like all of the performances except Katie Holmes <laughs> are strong, and the, you know, like you're really with them. And you, what what's fascinating to me is one of the things that Batman Returns fell apart with that people beat up on, and I and that people said the what it established that was the big downfall of superhero movies was the fact that there were too many characters. Right. Now, Batman Begins has characters coming out the pages. Like, Rucker Hauer has this tiny little role, but it's very memorable, right? Part of that's the the performance. You have the establishing stuff with Bruce's parents. You have all of these killer performances. What is it, do you guys think, like, that makes all of these tremendous, like, is it the performances themselves that make it better? Is it... With the performance, if the performances in, say, Batman Returns, if they had been better, would, which is not to take anything away from DeVito, but anyway, like if they had been better, would it 
have made that work? Like, is that the magic alchemy right there? Is it, is it the casting? I think it's that, but I also think it's the script. I think it's the way in which the characters all play together within the story. So it seems organic that they're all there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. That's where any superhero movie or any movie gets charged with, oh, well, it just didn't really work because this character kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Or, you know, I mean, that's what happens. But with this film, that doesn't happen to you at all. Like, everybody has an, a part in the story, and it makes sense that they're there. You know, like, Carmine Falcone is 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 the kingpin of the underworld, which is contributing to the rot of Gotham. Uh, he is the source of the rot of Gotham, and it's because he has continued to be, you know, this part, even as Gotham has kind of somewhat come out of its depression, he's the one that continues to be the cancer that's infecting to which Ra's al Ghul can make his play. As he says, your city is so corrupt, we've been able to infiltrate every single level of its government and beyond. So I think that's the key. It's script, it's performances, uh, and it's making sure that 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 character is needed. Um, And even if the part's small, that they have some relevance to what's happening. And I, I think, again, that's where you have to call out Goyer for writing a great script here that's that's firing on all cylinders you know uh, so uh, and then it's no one getting those performances except for Katie Holmes out of everybody <laughs> so you know i and i i Katie Holmes there's nothing against Katie Holmes as a person but she's just overmatched by everybody else they needed a stronger personality and good night <laughs> and i mean that pun literally wouldn't uh, amy adams have been perfect in this role. Now I'm glad that maybe she didn't get cast. So we get her later as Lois Lane. Cause she's fantastic, but she would have just rocked this role. Whereas Katie Holmes just brings nothing to it. Unfortunately. So, I, all right. So I, I think I'm in line with you, Matt, that she's, she's overmatched. Like it, it's, and when we get to dark Knight, we can, we can continue to talk about Miss Dawes, but and keeping it rooted right here in, in Batman begins. Tristan, is it the same thing for you? Do you think that Katie Holmes just, is well you know I, I was i was actually going to i mean i don't think i don't really want to dissect katie holmes because it's 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 katie holmes it's her performance it's she she was hired to be the girl next door because that's all that she can do and that just annoyed me but what i was going to comment on what rushing you just said about like a you know about the script and all the connections and everything like that what i really felt like was like i agree with you 100 percent I, I think it, it, it's, this had a good script, and I think the reason why the script was good is because it had great characterization, but the reason why those characters worked is because they were all going towards a common theme of fear and how fear manipulates each one of their characters. Um, even as even as uh, little as Rutger Hauer's character um, in trying to uh, instill fear in Morgan Freeman's character. You know, like, everything had this theme of justice and fear, and you can apply one of those, a single word like that to every single Nolan Batman film. You have fear, chaos, and pain. And that goes to Nolan's storytelling structure, and that goes to Goyer's script. And that is very important in this film. Well, and I love that because the idea of justice, fear, and mercy in this and how that all plays out uh, with each of the characters, but uh, also how we deal with the criminal population at large and 
the idea of fear driving people as, as individuals, but also as society, is, I think, just really impressive. Um, and it really has a lot to say because, you know, some of the things that Raza Ghul says ring kind of true and it's scary in the sense that like when you when you talk about you know that criminals prey on the niceties of of society uh society's it's, understanding it's, exactly it's um he has a point he uh, he does actually have a point but it's it's actually what we do with all that that really changes things and and so as i was saying at the beginning i think this is the point where superhero films start because it's taking itself seriously, it can also give us something serious to say. And I love that idea that it's not just we're going to say something, but it's also weaved through the storytelling structure. And it's a part of the theme for the characters as well. Not just, oh, we want to pile on something onto the audience to make them go think. No, the characters themselves are having to think through these elements. And that's what makes this such a strong film thematically. Well, what, what I would say in addition to that is that this is the first time, I think, uh, I, I honestly do believe this, especially on film, where Batman is given an arc. He's given somewhere to go. Um, and... You know, speaking about the fear and everything, this Batman, by the end of the film, is no longer just going around, you know, uh, 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 Liam Neeson says it very early in the movie, a vigilante is just a man, he can, he can be killed, you know, but if you become, a, you know, a legend, Mr. Wayne, right? Like, that, that, is the, that is the thing that is amazing about this, is that it takes, I think that's what gives it its weight, too is that it takes a superhero movie and instead of it just being about superhero go do good things for people, it's about a character actually going on a journey and growing and becoming somebody different by the end of the film, which is what the whole point of a dramatic exercise is supposed to be. I think that's what made it unique and I think that's the dragon that everybody has been chasing after ever since. And I like, I like how you put that because it makes you think, it makes you consider the themes... And it rushing, it ties into what you were saying, too, about how it drives the story forward. And it kind of makes me think of like when like John, you were talking about how like both you and um, Matt and John, you were, you were talking about how you kind of agree with what Liam Neeson's character was saying, you, like he's making some good points. That is a fantastic villain. And that is a fantastic movie when the bad guy is making good points. I mean, that gives it this shade of gray where the audience has to consider it, where he's not just twirling his mustache, he actually has a cause and you can relate to it. And so you have that internal conflict and, um, and rushing, you'll understand what I'm about to say, but John, of course, won't. In Knights of the Old Republic, um, you have the Jedi and you have the Sith. And when the Sith recite their pledge and, and their coda... Hmm. It it kind of mm -hmm. makes sense, and you start like as you're playing the game, right. you're like, "Wow, these these Sith guys are kind of have all everything figured out." If only there were a series of films I could have watched <laughs> that could have outlined what the Sith were like, but I guess I'll have to go back and play the game. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, you right. definitely will. Yeah, no, <laughs> I I think that the thing that I love here, and John, you said something uh, that I think is really important. You know, no one created something that everybody's been chasing since. And a lot of the ways in which 
Nick Meyer created something that everybody's been chasing since in Star Trek. Yes. Stop chasing. Just do something that's your own thing. And I think that's the thing that if anyone, and that's where I have to give them some credit is that Marvel found their own thing, but then it became their formula that they do. Uh, and that doesn't always work because it then just becomes a formula. And I think what Nolan did was something so impressive is that he created a series that was so very true to the comics, yet at the same time felt very realistic. And it was because I think he took it seriously and he did something different. I personally love that about Man of Steel and Batman v Superman as well because they took their own thing and they made their own thing and they did something different. They just didn't try to repeat what had been done before with the other. And and that's the thing. It's like he came in and he did a different Batman, um, you know, that we'd never seen, but we always kind of imagined was out there somewhere in the ether and he created it. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he took seriously the ideas of, of fear, uh, Batman's fear, uh, the way that we all have our own fears. I just think that there's something special about this film. And part of that, too, has to go with, I think, that Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard created a very different sound for the score. Uh, and I think it really, really works. Now, a lot of people will say, well, this is the beginning of the end of thematic scores. But Zimmer and, and James Newton Howard working together are be able to create something, a very specific sound that's so this trilogy. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. I, I think that uh, Zimmer's score, uh, and yes, Howard, I, I think it unfairly gets ignored uh, a lot of times when the music is discussed with this. But um, this score, you know, I mean, movies are alchemy and they, they need everything to come together right. And I think that um, the decisions that were made for how to play the theme, uh, you know, because Batman does have a theme uh, in this, and the way that it builds, like the, the, those drums build until finally you get the payoff when he becomes Batman. And so there's, there's this whole other level that the score works toward with the film of where it builds along with the story. And I think that it very wisely takes a more minimal approach than say an Elfman did uh, in 89 and 92, um, where they, you know, like they had the big overblown bombastic score, whereas this one is more, this is a character of it, of its own. And so, yeah, I, I think that that really helps it work. I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned character of its own because I I did enjoy the music. I I enjoyed Dark Knight more, uh, but I did enjoy the music here because of Batman's theme and the being a character all its own. One thing that also makes me think of a character all of its own is Gotham. This is a, a very unique Gotham. I think this is um, it's surprisingly very different from Dark Knight's Gotham. Yes, it's it's yes. Even though it was both sh shot in Chicago my backyard it's it feels very different because batman begins 
feels like a little bit left over, like certain parts of it felt left over from Keaton and uh, from Burton and Schumacher. Schumacher's Gotham, just a little bit, just a little bit. Like the like uh, the w- Wayne Tower in Batman Begins is feels like it could belong in Batman Forever. And once we get to the Dark Knight, Wayne Tower feels very much like it belongs in its own, like not necessarily its own world, but in a, in a real world, a real world scenario. Like I think it was uh, the mixture of the Narrows and some weird building CGI. It it definitely gave it its own feel, but yet it, I think it was, I don't know, dare I say perfected in Dark Knight? I don't know. What am I saying? No, I, it's funny because I'm going to go the opposite way and I'm going to say this is the best that Gotham looks in all of the films because it actually feels like Gotham. Okay. It doesn't feel like Chicago. And I'm biased in that area. Thing. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and they use the city to wonderful effect in The Dark Knight, but it doesn't feel like Gotham. It just feels like Batman now lives in Chicago. And here I actually felt like they had created a Gotham that was realistic you know um the the trains don't feel all that out of this world they they have a heightened sense of reality and that's what i liked here is that nolan talks about in the extras about this idea that it's reality just somewhat heightened and that's what gotham was here in this movie whereas i feel like by the time you get to the the dark knight it's just reality. It's, mm-hmm. There's nothing heightened about it. There's there's nothing special about it. It's just straight up, hey, welcome to Chicago. I mean Gotham. Um, th- this is not the case here, and I feel like th- it feels very realistic too because, you know, they built the Narrows, a bunch of it, in a hangar. They built a bunch of Gotham in a hangar. They, they, this place melded with the technology it all comes together i mean they even used um models uh they created a model of the 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 narrows area where arkham is that's just a huge bigature that they built just like in lord of the rings that they filmed and stuff like that so they they put all this stuff together and to me it works pretty seamlessly and i like it the most out of any of these three of the films i will say that um the production design is strong, but I will acknowledge a point from you, Tristan, that there are moments where the the bigature and the CG and those sorts of things, especially in the Narrows, don't quite come together as well as I think they had hoped they would. And I think that it leads to some cinematography issues. It didn't take me out of the movie. I mean, like, I think we're all used to, like, if we like the movie, we see that shot of the narrows and it's not great but it's like eh, that's okay i know i'm supposed to believe it you know and you sort of like roll with it um i do i i will say to you matt that i agree with you i would have liked to see the narrows return in one of the future films because i think it was a visually interesting place regardless of how well they pulled it off and even if they didn't go to it it would have been interesting to see it Mm -hmm. again right you know, have them fly over it or, or anything it like that. It becomes Arkham City. Well, I mean... There you, know, you go. Yeah, I mean, that you can go down a whole speculative <laughs> road about, you know, where where it could come from or go and, and stuff like that. So, I, you know, like, I, I can see the points both of you are making. I think that um, the city works as a character throughout all of them. Um, but, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely, Matt, I definitely see what you're saying where they went for broke and they created a city that feels like its own city as opposed to we're renting space in the real world. Well, and then uh, it was just films. annoyingly frustrating for me in the other two films because I, no one is so consistent in, ev- in everything else. The one thing that's completely inconsistent is the city itself. Throughout all three films, by the time they're done, it's just like, uh, and and I was, it was it actually shocks me the amount that Nolan allows to escape that nothing really ever seems to match anymore. Uh, in in the aesthetic of the city which he created, that I felt like they'd worked so hard to create in the first film, but doesn't match up in the second and third films at all. Uh, you know, and so to so to me that was actually kind of shocking because I know how Nolan tends to like his consistency, but he just lets this one slide, and and I don't get it, but. You know, I mean, it works for other people. Like Tristan loves the the way the second movie looks and feels more than the first. So, you know, that's just my personal opinion and, and where it kind of left me a little bit cold with the other two for that reason. Well, Rushing, I, I can't argue with your logic. I mean, I think I think you have very spot on logic uh, with why you like what you like and, and what they were trying to achieve in Batman Begins. And uh, John, I think you... You you hit it on the head. Like you you phrased it in a way that I I couldn't. It's some of these things, uh, some of these different elements with the miniatures, the bigatures, and the CGI. It was all mixed together, and it didn't quite m- make a whole. Uh, it, and it, so it didn't quite achieve what it was trying to achieve. But rushing, I think you saw what it was trying to, and you liked its individuality. Well, and one of the things too, when they first got, you know, Rachel takes. Bruce to basically the underbelly like it felt like level 1313 you know uh, Gotham felt like the worst of Coruscant basically uh, in Star Wars to put it in those terms and and that's the thing that I also really liked whereas again by the time I get to the other two films it just feels too clean it doesn't feel like Gotham Gotham's supposed to be kind of gritty and dirty and so yeah, no, I, I would just say that I think that there's no way to resolve this loggerhead. No, there is. In isn't. terms of, yeah, like, I I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's just like, I, I actually wind up falling in Tristan's camp in the sense that I think that the, the second film is absolutely beautiful, but keeping it rooted just here, just looking only at the Dark Knight, I think that I'm, just looking only at Batman Begins, the it, it's just one of those things where it it can it is sort of a pain point that that the things didn't meld and it and it's just I think that I think that Matt, if I'm reading you right, you would have liked him to like to see him come back and try to refine it and do it better the next time. Right. Whereas there definitely right. seems to be a sense of well that didn't work and I don't want to try that again, so we're gonna go to a different part of the city. Right. And it's going to look like this over here. So, you know, for me, you know, I think we can I think that we when we do get to Dark Knight, I think that this will be a very robust conversation (laughs) about why the city looks different. I think my rationale is Batman cleaned up the city between Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Yeah, it could. That's a that. I mean, you make an excellent point. I can't argue with that. That's actually great logic yourself. So, man, we are logicking each other all over the place tonight. 
We're going to be logic to death. Exactly. <laughs> I do want to ask one more thing because we could keep talking about this movie forever. But, well, not Batman forever. But anyway, no. uh, we want to touch on one more thing and ask you guys the costume. What do you think about the bat suit in this film? Um, This is... This is hard for me because I love Keaton's suit. And for the longest time, Keaton's suit was my favorite suit. And then this one comes along and I just fell in love with it. It just feels like like he's a just like a huge monster of a beast. You know, like he just he can tackle you. He can take you down. But at the same time, fight hand to hand. I didn't like uh, his Dark Knight costume. I, di- I, didn't, I didn't really like it. I, I thought it was. I didn't like how it was pieced together. I didn't like that that the head kind of looked like it could wobble. Um, but the movie's so amazing. His performance is so amazing, and he, and he's so badass himself. It didn't really matter. And so I don't know. I I'd have to say that this because we got to see all the reasoning behind every piece of the costume. This could be my favorite just because of that. I enjoy this costume a great deal. I think that it was constructed very much uh, with a you know, a sort of loving callback to what uh, Burton did. But that being said, and I know, and I fortunately got payoff since we all keep making reference to Dark Knight anyway. One of the first comments that I made about the suit after seeing it for the first time with my cousin was, I looked at him and I said, they still can't figure out how to make it so his head can turn. (laughs) And that was... That was something that stood out to me was I was like, oh, that suit's really cool. But come on, guys. Like it bugged me about like Keaton. You know, you go back and you watch the 89 Batman and like look up. He has to like bend backwards at like 45 degrees. Yeah. You know, and everybody thought that one shot of him like hitting the guy from around the corner without turning around was so cool. And I was like, well, practically, that's the only thing he can do. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think the suit looks really cool. But. If you're living in a world where they have given all of this reasoning and all of this practicality and all of this reality about it, um, you know, it it encourages you to pick at it a little bit and say, well, you know, he's kind of losing his peripheral vision to begin with. It would be nice if it was a little more functional. Um, but, you know, it looks cool. So I was fine with it. I think it, it looks pretty good for the most part i i like it a lot better than keaton's personally uh i I actually you're making fun of he can actually move his head a lot more than he does uh he just actually doesn't move his head a lot in this movie as batman um which i think is really interesting uh they did do something because he really wanted to be able to crouch Mm -hmm. a lot you know to be on things and so that was one of the big ideas uh, was to be able to make the suit functional enough for him so that he can move in it more than he, you know, than Keaton ever could. And you can tell that he can move a lot better in those fight scenes that he's doing in the train. So I think all that is fantastic. The one thing that kind of bothers me is the way in which the, the suit is made out of neoprene. And it'll, if he's crouching and he kind of has his shoulders raised, it kind of it doesn't lay on him right. Like it it it, it, it kind of has this strange bunching that it does. Uh, honestly, yeah. I mean it the the bat costume doesn't get perfect for me until Ben Affleck's costume. I mean that costume is just it, it's everything from the comic. 
it feels like you walked out of the comic. This one was a great step, though. I, I, I honestly, for me, it, you know, until that came along, this is my favorite bat costume. So I really can't complain too much. And I, I love the way that they specifically, and Nolan made this a big point. He wanted the cape to feel like the comic, mm-hmm. where it would just flow. You know, that it would do that thing where it was just kind of billowing around him and. They do a great job of making that look like it does that. Um, and so when he's in that crouch position, it's kind of flowing out from him. And the kind of way that you do with your Batman action figures, John, uh, in your office. So, Well, yes. That, you know, it's very important to, to do that, actually, as yeah, he's get, hanging off. Yeah. You, you got to get the cape just <laughs> right. Uh, so. Well, you know, I mean, he's hanging off of his uh, black market Batman selfie stick from Hong Kong right now. And it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you want it to look right. You got to so. get it just right. So you, you do. Again, I, I mean, this is this really is a film that you could just keep talking about. But I, I want to, to ask you guys, what do you rate Batman Begins? Um, because we've, I think we've had a lot of great things to say about it. Where does this one rank for you just itself, uh, giving it a rating? What do you think? Nine out of ten. I, I love this film. I think it's fantastic. It was, um, it was my favorite of the three for a long time. And I, uh, I, it, it took some soul searching. It took some, uh, it took some reflection where I knew that Dark Knight was a better movie than Batman Begins, but I felt like I got more enjoyment out of this film. And then I realized that I was just talking stupid. And like, is it a perfect film? No, but this gets a nine out of 10 because this was a, a, a huge undertaking and they pulled it off and they ha- it has a great cast, great music, great outfit, great feeling. And it spawned one of the best trilogies of all time. Uh, I, I'm going to give two ratings here. The first time I watched this movie and you'll consider me a heretic, I guess, in some regard, that if I were to put it on a 10 scale like you did, Tristan, the first time I walked out of this movie, I gave it probably a seven and a half out of 10 because there were problems with me with the way the, the fight scenes were shot. Um, I didn't know how I felt about, you know, where they took the character. And again, I was very, I'm a little bit older than you guys. And so the 1989 Batman stood as much more of a pillar of nostalgia um, when I first went into this film. That being said, when I saw it a second time, it bumped up to like an eight and a half out of 10. I still think that there are, that there are some issues with the cinematography, not quite working with all of the visual effects. Um, I think that there are issues with how the fight scenes are shot. Uh, they can get a little visually mixed up. I think it's very obvious that, you're dealing with a very gifted director who hasn't really done a fight scene on this scale before. Um, when you like go to the docks and stuff like that, the one-to-one fight scenes are, are brilliant, but like the group fight scenes are, they're, they're just a little off. Um, and I, I also have to say that Katie Holmes was a huge star at the time that this came out. At least I, I think she was, I knew her name of everybody in the cast. I knew who Katie Holmes was most easily. Um, and it was like her, her performance did leave me, leave me a bit flat. And as a result, because she's such a pivotal character in the film, that's why it never really 
rises above that. Now, all of that being said, I still love it. I still adore it. I still go back and I watch it and I will keep rewatching it because this is the only Batman film that I can watch where I have a legitimate, deep emotional reaction with what happens with his parents. Um, I think that that is really, for me, the moment where this this really breaks through in terms of a superhero movie is it really speaks to the tragedy of what creates Bruce Wayne slash Batman. So there you go. I really like this movie. <laughs> I, I I haven't seen it in a little bit. Uh, it had been a while since I'd actually gotten a chance uh, to sit down and watch it. But this movie's good. It's really good. Uh, I don't know... I've heard online, you know, just people just kind of like, yeah, Batman Begins, you know, I don't know what these people are watching, but this movie's great. Now, I will have to say, I I honestly don't like this version of the death of the Waynes as much as I liked Batman v Superman's, but I think it's because I like the cinematography and the, the way it shot better uh, in that. Uh, I think it's, and again, it feels just like it was ripped out of the comics in that movie. But that's not taking anything away from this movie because it's also well done. Uh, I just, I really, really like this movie. Um, the problem for me is the way that Katie Holmes kind of drags the movie down when she's on screen. And so for me, because of that, it's four out of five batarangs. Uh, so it's, it's very, very close to being perfect. I feel like if Amy Adams or somebody else had been cast in the role that was stronger and could really bring that, that gravitas to the role the way everybody else did, she wouldn't have been outclassed and it would have been a, I I honestly say it would have been a perfect movie. Rachel Weisz. Yeah. She could have been incredible uh, in the role. Uh, so all in all, though, this is an incredible movie, and I'm so glad that we are, are talking about the Nolan trilogy. I'm so thankful for Nolan for this trilogy, and uh, I, I can't wait to get to the others with you guys. Uh, so, And you guys will be back, so thank you for committing to that. Uh, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it, uh, and I know I'm going to enjoy it because we already had a fantastic and lively discussion tonight even though john hurt my heart by making fun or degrading in any way on her majesty's secret service now see the thing is if i hurt your heart that's a perfect discussion for me and so this <laughs> i give this podcast five out of five bad things <laughs> oh man well i love doing this uh well thank you so much to our associate producers ken trip davis grayson and norman lau uh, for their support of the network on patreon there's absolutely no way we can do this here at Trek FM without the support of listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of our team and help make sure that everything that's coming to you from the network comes each and every week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Tristan, I just love when you're on the 602 Club. Um, and I'm so glad that you were back this week. Um, in fact, I was just listening to you and your lovely girl, your first lovely girl, <laughs> as you're welcoming your next lovely girl soon as uh, the girl is pregnant. So congratulations from everybody here at the 602 Club. But um, let everybody know where they can find you and maybe where they can be listening to you and the girl talk about things like, oh, I don't know, maybe some sitcoms that you guys love. Well, you can find me on the Trek FM network on To The Journey. 
I, yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> no, um, you can find me on Trek.fm uh, on the uh, To The Journey podcast uh, with Charlene Schmidt where we talk Star Trek Voyager. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network, which you uh, you know, mentioned just now. Uh, I, I love podcasting with my wife, a.k.a. the girl, on Nerd Nuptial. We just got done with a conversation about talking about being raised on sitcoms and how different they are from now and then. And uh, you can also find me on the Senate floor, which is the Nerd Party's General Geek Podcast, kind of a uh, a spiritual successor to 602 Club, just on a different network. That's right. Which, and if you're not listening, you should be listening. <laughs> so do it. Just do it, fans. Uh, John, yeah, you're. It. I mean, your seat is always here in the 602 Club. It's it's permanently imprinted. Uh, nobody else can sit on it. Uh, welcome mm-hmm. back. Thank you for being here. And of course, let everybody know uh, where they can find you on the, well, the interwebs. Well, you know, it's funny uh, that that uh, the Nerd Party was mentioned because I, I happen to be over on the Nerd Party on Wait, Aggressive Negotiations. I know, right? A Star Wars podcast. Um, lots of fun. We have a, a grand old time there. My co-host is batting average on being correct about things about 50-50, but I love him. Uh, you can also find me on Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And uh, look up the username Kessel Junkie. I'm out there somewhere, and you can find me. Uh, and Matt, would you happen to know anything about my co-host on Aggressive Negotiations? You know, I do know something about him, which it's it's fun. Uh, the co-host, his name is is Matt Rushing, and, and I love to th- oh. the, the, I'm on that show with you, John, because your batting average is about 50-50. <laughs> so together we make 100%, which is fantastic. Uh, so, <laughs> Baby, so, we got a stew going. <laughs> I think we got a stew going there. Uh, man, in fact, oh gosh, I could go way down that, that rabbit hole about the stew, but what's not? Uh, you can find me on The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine, and of course you can find me here on the network with Bruce Gibson and Dan Gunther talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek there on Literary Treks. Thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? 